0: Evidence and answers. Your two to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zuccaran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat is interviewing leading apologetics scholar, Dr. Ron Rhodes. Ron has been a guest on Evidence and Answers many times, and you can find multiple interviews and teachings right there on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Today's topic is a popular one. The Poverty of the Prosperity Gospel. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's our host, Dr. Pat Zucran, and Dr. Ron Rhodes with the conclusion to this interview.
1: Yes, and God being sovereign is not subject to any law, law of faith or whatever it may be, because He, as you stated, He is ruler and creator overall.
2: That's exactly right. And so this idea of us being like God by having faith and speaking faith words is nonsense. Like I said, God gets what he wants because he is God. When God speaks a word that brings something into being, whether it's a miracle or whether God was creating the universe, the only reason why the universe left into being or a miracle comes about is because of his identity. He is, in fact, the divine sovereign of the universe.
1: Yes, now let's look at another verse here, Genesis 1, 27 and 28. says that we are made in the image of God, so therefore we are little gods.
2: Well, in fact, we're an exact duplication in kind, according to One Word Faith Leader. And one person said, just as dogs have puppies and cats have kittens, so God has little gods. <laughs> oh my goodness, when I think about how God must think when he looks down on the earth and hears this creature say something like that. This idea, this prosperity gospel, basically teaches that Adam was created in God's class. He had the same authority as God on the earth. The truth of the matter is, though, is that that's eisegesis. You're reading something into the text of Scripture that simply is not there. All Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, is is telling us is that man is created in God's image or his likeness in the sense that... He is a finite reflection of God in his rational nature, his moral nature, and his dominion over creation. Now, it's kind of interesting, Pat, when you look at the Hebrew word for image. I'm sure that you're aware of this. You know, Back in ancient times, whenever a king would conquer a territory, he would put an image of himself in that territory to represent his sovereignty over that territory. Well, man is said to be in in the image of God, and as the image of God, we represent God's authority. We don't represent our own authority as little gods. Rather, we as finite creatures represent God's authority over the world. And so again, this is another example of the word-faith movement having a man-centered gospel as opposed to the God-centered gospel of which Scripture truly speaks.
1: Right. That's a clear twisting of the scripture there. You know, here's one that I run into quite a bit. Just ran into it speaking out there in Southeast Asia, one of the poorest countries out there. We're talking about Genesis chapter 12 of the Abrahamic covenant where God says to Abraham, I will make you a great nation and I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And the person said that that promise applies to all believers in Christ. Galatians 3.14 he was referring to, he says, so that in Christ the blessings of Abraham come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus. So all the promises of Abraham of becoming a great nation, of having many offspring as the stars in the skies, to bless those who bless you and, and curse those who curse you, all belong to every believer in Jesus Christ
2: well you know this is very close to what's called replacement theology you know this idea that the church replaces israel and all the promises made to israel are in fact fulfilled in a spiritual way in the church the problem with that is that the abrahamic covenant in genesis 12 as well as the davidic covenant in second samuel 7 were unconditional covenants made to israel alone israel alone and when you look at what's taken place throughout history We find that covenant verified over and over again. Now, after the Abrahamic covenant was pronounced for Israel, it got repeated to his son and his son's son, and in fact, throughout the rest of the Old Testament. In fact, every book except one in the Old Testament alludes to the promises God made to Israel in the Abrahamic covenant. And then when you get to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 9-11 through talks about how God still has a future for Israel, uh, indicating that not just those covenants, but the New Covenant as well would one day be fulfilled. And it's my personal belief, um, Pat, that those covenants will literally be fulfilled in what's called the future millennial kingdom, which takes place after Christ comes again. And the land promises of the Abrahamic covenant and the throne promises of the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 will be literally fulfilled. Now here's the thing. It is true that we are spiritual beneficiaries of Abraham. That is true. But that does not mean that the church replaces Israel, nor does it mean that all the stipulations of the Abrahamic covenant become literally fulfilled in the church. Rather, it simply means that just as Abraham was a man of faith, who became justified by faith and was a man of God, so those of us of faith in New Testament times are also justified by faith, and therefore we are spiritually akin or spiritually related to Abraham. But again, it doesn't mean that we replace Israel or that we take over all those promises made in the Abrahamic covenant. That's simply you know, distorting the Scriptures. Scripture tells us to rightly divide the word of truth. And if you're going to rightly divide the word of truth, you have to admit that that Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant made to Israel alone.
1: Yes, I think the second half of Galatians 3.14, you know, it says, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith.
2: Well, and even in the covenant itself, when you look back in Genesis, it talks about how all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through the, the seed of the woman. All the peoples of the earth that includes the Gentiles so from the very beginning the Gentiles were intended to be you know blessed as a result of Abraham but again that does not mean that the promises that were made specifically to Israel through Abraham are fulfilled in the church because the church didn't even exist until Acts chapter 2 it is a distinct entity and by the way when you look at the book of Acts we see that the church and Israel continue to be distinct with Israel being mentioned 20 specific times. Yeah, Israel mentioned 20 times and the church mentioned 19 times. So even in the book of Transitions, the book of Acts, we see that the church and Israel are still considered to be distinct from each other.
1: Great, expounding on that verse there. Well, here's another one we often hear. I think I've heard this since I first became a Christian and got exposed to this message. Isaiah 53, 5, where it says, By his wounds we are healed. We are healed of every disease, of every sickness, through what Christ did on the cross. So, by his wounds, we are healed. Well, that
2: probably is the number one verse that's cited to say that healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And this idea of being guaranteed, this is one of those verses, Pat, that leads to guilt. You see, because there's a lot of Christians out there who are sick. And because they are sick, they hear verses like this and they say, well, wait a minute. It says that it's guaranteed in the atonement, and yet I've got cancer. It's guaranteed in the atonement, and yet I've got kidney problems. So what am I doing wrong? So this is one of those verses where we need to get it right. And I think the truth of the matter, when you look at the whole thing in context, it's clear that while ultimate physical healing is guaranteed in the atonement, and I'm talking about the resurrection of our bodies in the future, the healing of our bodies in the mortal state prior to death is not guaranteed in the atonement. You have to understand that that Hebrew word for healing can refer to physical healing, but can also refer to spiritual healing. And the context of Isaiah 53 is very clearly indicating a spiritual healing because you have an explicit mention of Christ being pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And so those two words, transgressions and iniquities, set the context. And so therefore, a spiritual healing from the misery of human sin is in view. And by the way, the Isaiah who wrote all this down, he grew old and died. Just like all the other prophets and just like the apostles did. They did not have ultimate healing in their mortal bodies, but they will in the future when they get resurrected.
1: Yes, you know, and akin to that is James four two, you know, which says, you know, we have not because we ask not, and often you hear many of these preachers Uh, encourage us to pray for personal success in all areas of life. One of them states when we pray believing that we have already received what we are praying, God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is the key to getting results as a Christian.
2: Well, it's interesting that they say that. I, I certainly believe, Pat, that when you get sick that you should in fact pray. And you can ask for a healing, but it must be subject to God's will because not everything we ask is according to his will. 1 John 5.14 tells us this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And likewise, we are told in John 15.7 that we must abide in him and let his word abide in us. James 4.3 tells us that we cannot ask amiss out of our own selfishness. And then, you know, there's other verses that say the same thing. Certainly when you look at the history of the early believers, not all of them were healed. You know, Timothy had a stomach problem that Paul couldn't heal. Paul had a thorn in the flesh, and many think that was an eye problem. Paul couldn't heal Epaphroditus, who almost died. I mean, I could just point to one example after another, where, if it was true that healing is guaranteed in the Atonement, then these people would have never got sick and never had any kind of physical symptoms. But they did have physical symptoms. And like Paul says in First Corinthians uh, 4 and into chapter 5, the fact of the matter is, is that we've all got bodies that are wearing down. Every year that passes, our bodies are wearing down. And one day we're going to die. Our physical healing in the mortal state is not guaranteed, but it is guaranteed that we'll be healed in the resurrection body. And I always tell people that that resurrection body is going to be a body upgrade. No more sickness, no more pain, no more disease. It has what I tell people is perma-flesh. It never gets old, and it never gets sick. So, yes, there's going to be healing, but that's in the future resurrection body.
1: Well, here's another one on faith. Mark 11, 22 through 23, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. So if I name it, I claim it, and I believe it, and, with, and I don't doubt, I'm going to get it.
2: You know what's interesting about this verse in Mark 11:22 is that very often word-faith teachers tell us that there's a subjective genitive here. Now, I'm not going to get all Greek on you, but basically what word-faith teachers say is that this verse is communicating the idea that you and I as Christians ought to have the God kind of faith, the same kind of faith that God has. And uh, the idea is that God himself has faith, and therefore that you and I should have the same kind of faith that God has, and when we do that, we'll have the things that we speak out loud. Now the truth is, is that this is not a subjective genitive, it is an objective genitive, meaning that God is the object of our faith. We are to have faith in God alone. We're not to have faith in faith as a power. Rather, we are to have faith in God alone. And as we have faith in God alone, that can bring about great results, but it is subject to God's will. We do not have the power to simply call things into existence like God does.
1: Yes, uh, understanding that verse in its context and understanding, you know, God is the creator, we are the servants, It works the other way around. He doesn't serve us, we serve Him, and we must subject ourselves to His will. He doesn't subject Himself to our will.
2: That's right. God is God, and we are finite creatures. God is the Creator, we are the creatures. And while God has provided us incredible blessings, and while God can do miracles, and sometimes does do miracles among us, the fact is, it's always subject to the will of the Sovereign Creator, and Pat, sometimes God has a reason. For allowing us to go through tough times, sometimes God has a reason for allowing us to be poor. Sometimes God has a reason for allowing us to get cancer and die. We won't find out those reasons on this side of eternity. But you know what? The future is glorious for those of us who believe. In fact, it's so great that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind is conceived of how great it will be.
1: Well, here's the last verse that we'll go through: Second Corinthians eight nine. It states, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, look at that, Ron, he was rich, yet for your <laughs> sakes he became poor, that you might, through his poverty, might become rich. How about that?
2: Well, that is a uh, important verse, and let me just begin by saying that if you consult the broader context of Corinthians, not just Second Corinthians, but First Corinthians as well, it's clear that if Paul was telling them that they ought to be rich, he was promising them something that he himself did not possess. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.11 informed this exact same church that he and his colleagues hungered and thirsted, were poorly dressed, and were homeless. And then Paul goes on to exhort them to be imitators of his life and teaching in 1 Corinthians 4.16. So I don't think that financial prosperity or richness is the context here. I think Paul was speaking about spiritual prosperity, and that fits not just Second Corinthians, but the broader context of all of Paul's teachings. And the, the thing of it is is that this is a wonderful verse, if you take it in its context. The fact is, is that Jesus, who was incredibly rich as the divine creator of the universe, he's God, he became poor, stepping into humanity, becoming a servant. And subjected himself to poverty and even death on a humiliating cross in order that you might become spiritually rich that is to say you might become saved and have eternal riches in heaven so this is another example of reading a meaning into the text that is not there you know if you take it in its proper context it is such wonderful news this kind of salvation is just beyond what any of us could ever fathom But these guys read finances into it, and finances are completely foreign to the context.
1: Yes, you know, it feeds on one of the strongest desires that we all have, and the desire for wealth.
2: And Paul informed the Philippians, I might mention, that he had learned to be content even when going hungry. Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12. You know, one would think that he would have instead claimed that the prosperity promised in the Atonement to meet his every need when he got hungry, but Paul never said that. He said he had learned to be content even when going hungry, and that we are called to imitate Paul. Now, that seems completely contrary to this prosperity gospel. These are the kind of things, Pat, that we need to consider in terms of Scripture, interpreting Scripture. And I'll tell you something. Whenever you interpret one verse in such a way that is clearly contradicted by many others, you've interpreted that Scripture wrongly. And that's exactly the point that I want to make to some of these, you know, these financial-oriented word-faith teachers of the prosperity gospel.
1: Well, Ron, with that, what is the biblical view of wealth?
2: Well, first of all, um, it is not a sin to be poor. You know, God is the one who can make a person rich or poor. And uh, some of the people that we find mentioned in the Bible were pretty rich. You know, when you look at Abraham and when you look at Job, these were wealthy people, but these people did not have a love of possessions. God made them wealthy, but they didn't love riches. And so God does not condemn being wealthy, but he does condemn a love of riches. And you see that in Luke sixteen thirteen, 13, and 1 Timothy six ten, and other passages. One of the reasons why there are warnings against the love of wealth is that it can lead to destruction. Paul himself said that those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And that's found in 1 Timothy 6, 9. That's a great verse to meditate on. As well, Pat, you know, Paul himself warned that in the last days, and by the way, I think that we're in those last days, Paul warned that in the last days there will come times of difficulty and people will be lovers of self and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure. It's much better, Pat, to do as Jesus said, and that is to lay up our treasures in heaven, not to lay up treasures on earth. Because our treasures in heaven will last whereas whatever treasures we have on earth are going to perish.
1: So the biblical view is, you know, that we are to steward the finances that God gives us and use it for his service, not for our own wealth building and to seek wealth in and of, an, you know, as an end in and of itself.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, uh, use it for something good. If God blesses you with material wealth, you can use that wealth as a channel of blessing for other people. I don't think God gives a, a Christian millions and millions of dollars just so it can be building up interest in the bank, and that's all that happens. But rather, that money can be channeled to missionaries and to ministers and, and pastors, and you know, people spreading the good news of the gospel, and to parachurch ministries and radio ministries and all that. And so that's why we have wealth. None of us can hold on to that wealth. You know, when we die, our spirit departs the body and goes into eternity, and Pat, we leave it all behind. And I tell you what, when you face that judgment, it's going to be so much better if you use whatever resources you have, whether you're wealthy or poor, for the Lord.
1: Oh, Rob, right, what is the biblical view of healing and the role of faith in healing?
2: Well, I think that God can heal and God does heal, but at the same time, we are living in a universe that's been permeated by death and disease as a result of the first sin of the first couple. When Adam and Eve sinned, I believe that disease and death entered the universe, and we've been perishing ever since. Now, I think that that's a mercy, to tell you the truth. It is a mercy that we grow old and die, because how horrible it would be for the human race to be catapulted into sin and sickness and be that way for all eternity. You see, the very fact that God allows us to die is a mercy because it means that we don't have to live forever in a state of disease. Now, God has provided for healing, both spiritual and physical, and uh, that, that healing comes not necessarily in the present mortal life, but in the future life. Now, God can heal in the present life, and he does heal in the present life, but it is subject to his will. And it's not by some mighty, you know, spiritual miracle worker that you see on TV who has television cameras following him everywhere. In fact, not long ago, Pat, I heard Chuck Swindoll speaking on all this, and he's not like what you consider to be some kind of a great charismatic leader. He's just not. But he had a friend who was stage four cancer, and his friend called and asked him to pray for him. And Chuck just said a simple three-sentence prayer, and that was it. The man got healed. He got completely healed of stage four cancer. And so that's an example of being healed. And yet there's other people I know of that God has chosen not to heal, that God apparently had a purpose in allowing them to go through what they went through, uh, just, just like God has allowed Johnny Erickson to retain her injury. You know, God can work in circumstances like you'd never believe, and in her case, God used her circumstances to reach the entire world for Christ. You see, so if there's some listener to my voice who's going through some kind of a sickness or maybe a physical injury of some sort, trust in God. God is a master at bringing good out of evil, and he may have something in store for you in the future that you haven't even thought of yet.
1: Yes, you know, and there are times in the scripture when God, you know, when Christ healed people who had tremendous faith, like that Roman centurion. Sure. But there are other times where Jesus healed, and it didn't seem that people demonstrated this kind of unwavering, unshakable faith in God. In fact, some of them weren't even expecting to be healed, and, and Jesus just suddenly healed them.
2: Well, I believe that you should definitely pray for healing when you get sick and I also think you should go to the doctor you know Jesus himself said that the sick go to the doctor you know so Jesus has nothing against going to the doctor because sometimes God can bring about a healing through medical science so don't think that that shows a lack of faith by going to the doctor but there's other times where God may choose to allow you to go through a time of suffering because he's got a greater purpose in mind he might be stretching your muscles or it may be to reach more people for Christ. Pat, I'm sure that you know that the gospel is growing fastest in those countries where there is the greatest amount of suffering today. And one begins to wonder if anybody would turn to the Lord if there was virtually no suffering in the world. You know, so I think God does have sovereign purposes for allowing suffering for a time, but it's only for a time. And meanwhile, we have that eternal hope of a resurrection body, and we're going to live on a resurrected earth in a resurrected universe, and death will be a thing of the ancient past.
1: Fantastic. You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Ron Rhodes, President of Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries. You know, Ron, you've been given a great critique of this movement. If people want more information, where can they go about you and and the things that you teach?
2: Well, you can just go over to our uh, website, ronrodes.org, ronrodes.org, that's r-o-n-r-h-o-d-e-s.org, and there's just a lot of free stuff that you can download we have a free newsletter you can sign up for, and we don't ask for any money for that. So, you know, if we can help, uh, you know, stop over. And we, we've also got a place where you can email me there at the website if you want to.
1: Oh, so it's all free. If I send you money, will I get doubled in return? <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, just kidding. Will you get a hundredfold return? <laughs> no, well, you won't get a hundredfold return. <laughs> but, you know, we are just a, um, a nonprofit ministry, and nobody's salaried in our ministry. Virtually all funds that we take in at our ministry go to the work of ministry. So we try to, we just work with a bunch of great volunteers on our side from all over the world who have a common interest of defending the one true faith that's found in Scripture.
1: Fantastic. That's Dr. Ron Rhodes from Reasoning from the Scriptures Ministries. And also, you can listen to a host of interviews with Dr. Ron Rhodes at evidenceandanswers.org on numerous subjects, including one of the favorites here, Bible Prophecy, but also the cults and the occult. So, Ron, thanks for being with us again here oh, on Evidence & Answers.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us here on Evidence & Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you find this broadcast to be of a great value to you, would you please consider partnering with us? Evidence & Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, you may do so right there online on the homepage of our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, including articles, additional audio, and Pat's books. Be sure to share our website with your family, your friends, and your church. Evidence & Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, please visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers.